0: Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on a carnivore cure elimination diet to get people to root cause healing. And oftentimes that starts with healing the gut. All right. So today I'm super excited to share this interview with you. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Benjamin Bickman, but he is the expert in insulin resistance. Dr. Benjamin Bickman has a PhD in bioenergetics. And is currently a scientist and professor at BYU. And you can see his heart as a professor with all his content that he shares, his talks, and even his book that's a bestseller called Why We Get Sick. We talk a lot about the concerns going on right now about if ketogenic diets are healthy, if eating protein or fat is more ideal, what is going on with insulin resistance? Is it really the sugars? Is it the fat? Or are there other things I highly recommend listening to this whole interview because there is a lot of information and information that Dr. Bickman breaks down so easily that I don't even have to really ask clarifying questions. Let's get right into the interview. So Dr. Benjamin Bickman, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I already told you, but I'm a huge, huge fan. I think your work is great. You share science in such an easy, digestible way. And if you could introduce yourself for the people that are listening and watching that may not have heard of you.
1: Yeah, yeah. My name's Ben Bickman. I'm a PhD scientist uh, and researcher and professor, I should say. So scientist and professor. So I teach undergraduate and graduate courses in pathophysiology, so the sick body, and endocrinology, so the function of hormones within the body. Those are the teaching assignments. And my research agenda is really heavily focused on endocrinology and, and the insulin aspect of health. And to take it one more step, basically how insulin can be uh, can go from a hero to a villain, where while it is an absolutely essential hormone, um, unfortunately, we're living a life where we have too much of it. Uh, and then it starts to misbehave.
0: Like you said, you are one of the experts in insulin resistance and metabolic flexibility. And there's been a lot of chatter um, in the internet world of things with nutritionists, doctors that say that insulin resistance is actually um, that we may need a little bit of carbohydrates for insulin sensitivity. So too low of diets without carbohydrates can cause um insulin to not work well. And so it's not ideal. And then there's some people that say, actually, nowadays it's really the PUFAs that are causing the insulin resistance, um, or that the cells itself are becoming insulin sensitive because of the excess PUFAs, which then make people gain weight. Mm-hmm. And then some people are like, no, it's the, you know, sugar insulin yeah. model. I figured we should ask the expert, you know what is causing insulin resistance?
1: Right, yeah, in fact, Judy, your your question there, you brought up a lot of things, <laughs> like the difference between insulin resistance and glucose tolerance and and now uh, the the origins of insulin resistance itself. So briefly, I'll answer that um that question directly. Um insulin resistance, just so the audience has uh, and looks at it the way I do, insulin resistance is really a, a coin with two sides. Now, the coin that I would be holding, this allegorical coin would be called insulin resistance. And this is the insulin resistance that we see in the human body, whether it is those more clinically um, relevant cases of pathological insulin resistance, or whether it's the physiological insulin resistance that happens during puberty and during pregnancy. But regardless, anytime we're calling something insulin resistance in the body, it's this coin with two sides on one side, is the fact that insulin isn't working the same way that it used to. So the hormone insulin isn't able to do all the things it used to at some of the cells of the body. Emphasis on some of the cells. Most of the body's cells respond to insulin as well as they ever did. So it's not like it's a global or universal phenomenon within the body. But the other side of that coin is hyperinsulinemia, or chronically elevated blood insulin levels. These two things will always come together compromised insulin signaling and chronically elevated insulin itself whether it, again whether it is a pathological insulin resistance that's making the person sick or whether it is the physiological insulin resistance which is helping that boy or girl grow very rapidly during puberty or whether it's helping mommy's body and baby to be's body grow um, in order you know throughout the pregnancy in both in all of these instances, it's the combination of those two variables or both sides of the coin. You can't have one without the other. So that's insulin resistance just by way of a common definition. Then the origins of insulin resistance, as you note, is very, very debated. So I, in an effort to try to simplify it and distill what I believe um, all the data suggests into the simplest concepts, I think one way of looking at it is looking at insulin resistance as being a result of primary causes or a result of secondary causes with regards to primary causes these are very these are stimuli that can cause insulin resistance independent of anything else and it can cause it all around the body at every at various cells at fat cells muscle cells liver cells etc brain cells and so the there are three primary causes of insulin resistance as i define it and and by that i mean you can take humans and and isolated cells And if you expose them to all three of these things that I'll mention in a moment, then they'll become insulin resistant. And that is elevated levels of inflammatory proteins, so inflammation, elevated levels of stress hormones, I mean, that's cortisol and epinephrine, and then lastly, chronically elevated levels of insulin, so inflammation, stress, and insulin. Now, inflammation and stress are so widely thrown around these days. You know, in, in pop culture, everyone wants to blame everything on stress or blame everything on inflammation. And so I'm being very careful using those words. But when we can detect elevated levels of infl- inflammatory proteins or hormones, um, then the body will become insulin resistant as a direct result. Same with those stress hormones, cortisol and epinephrine. Everything else can be fine. But if those hormones are up for too long, then the body starts to become insulin resistant. And then what I believe is the most relevant, because you can change it so quickly, mm-hmm. is the chronically elevated insulin, where too much insulin, is causing the body to become resistant to it. So those are the primary causes. And then the secondary cause, I believe is uh, something like linoleic acid is, is a prime example of that because you can't treat cells with like muscle cells with linoleic acid, and then they become insulin resistant. It doesn't happen the same with, with neurons in the brain. It doesn't happen. What can happen is that linoleic acid, now linoleic acid can do all kinds of bad things in the body from these refined seed oils. But just for the um, to see it through the lens of insulin resistance, I believe it's secondary because when the fat cells start to accumulate linoleic acid, it forces the fat cells to grow through a process called hypertrophy. Right. And when the fat cells are each individually getting too big, rather than multiplying in number, then those bigger or hypertrophic fat cells become insulin resistant. And so the, in other words, the seed oils can promote insulin resistance through the body, but it would be in part due to what it's doing at the, at the fat cells by making the fat cells grow in a harmful way. And then the fat cells are promoting the insulin resistance throughout the body. So to sum it up, primary causes, inflammation, stress, and insulin itself, and then secondary causes like linoleic acid from refined seed oils.
0: Could you have a scenario where the primaries are relatively normal, but then the secondaries are enough that it can cause insulin resistance, or would some of the primaries have to be occurring? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print, and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful.
1: That's a great question. Um, I, I don't think you could cause insulin resistance with just seed oil. I don't. Because as much as linoleic acid is going to promote a fat cell to grow through hypertrophy, sure. you would still have to have some signal to tell the fat cell to grow, which something like insulin, for example. So, so you'd have to, yeah, you'd have to, because the fat cell, linoleic acid alone is not mm-hmm. going to force the fat cell to grow. Um, a fat cell can only grow if it has a growth signal in the form of insulin.
0: Sure.
1: Um, so, I think you'd have to kind of combine those where you'd have elevated insulin. Now, even in, in, a, in, a, in a body, you could have elevated insulin, it would be promoting fat growth either through hypertrophy or hyperplasia. And hyperplasia is a healthy way to get fat, paradoxically, where each fat cell stays quite modest, um, but you just have more of them. Anyway, it's a long-winded way of saying, I, I don't believe linoleic acid alone is sufficient to cause insulin resistance. There would have to be some other stimulus promoting the growth of the fat cell, like the elevated insulin or cortisol, which also can induce fat cell growth in certain parts of the body.
0: Okay. So then what, if I'm hearing you correctly, it seems like factors like stress and inflammation in the body and just, you know, lifestyle has a bigger role on insulin resistance, um, than maybe some of the dietary intake, or oh, well, just specific to maybe linoleic acid. Those are more, Almost more important because let's say your diet is clean, likely you're eating meat-based and you're maybe having some veggies occasionally, but you know mostly whole Mm foods. But Mm -hmm. if your insulin is still high or you have some bit of inflammation, maybe sometimes it can be the stress. Is that like something lifestyle-related? Can that be? Oh yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, like with stress, um, something as simple as a bad night of sleep, which I know very well with little kids. Um, it's, if someone sleeps poorly one night, they will have demonstrable detectable insulin resistance the next day. That is something that can be quantified in in a lab and it is entirely a result of the elevated cortisol because of the bad sleep. Now, thankfully that very kind of rapid onset insulin resistance can be corrected by just one good night of sleep, but you can imagine all of these variables coming into play in the average person where the average individual has terrible sleep habits. They have terrible dietary habits where they're eating refined starches and sugars every two or three hours. So their insulin's elevated all the time. And they may or may not be exposing themselves to foods or chemicals that are aggravating their in- immune system and thus increasing inflammatory proteins. And to top it all off, in addition to those primary causes, they're eating their carbs from b- bags and boxes with barcodes, which means that the fats in them will always be seed oil fats. Right high linoleic acid. So it is just an absolute perfect storm of variables that are coming in to play to create insulin resistance. And and I think it's important for me to emphasize that as much as I'm talking about stress, inflammation, insulin, and even linoleic acid is all distinct in their ability to induce insulin resistance. In our environment, you simply have all of them. And so trying to tease them out or rank order them, which one's worse, I I can't do that. I don't know of any studies that have attempted to you know say which one is worse than the others and and i would almost say it, it doesn't matter right. we have all of them
0: and i'm really glad you're saying this because you know there's there's just information out there where people are saying we know that linoleic acid is not ideal from seed oils so therefore if your animal has been eating linoleic acid their fat will have more linoleic acid so therefore Even if you're eating a like clean carnivore diet, you want to stay away from the chicken skins. You want to stay away Mm -hmm. from the grain fed porks because they can actually be the things that are making you insulin resistant. And I don't like, I think there's a technicality in what you just said that may make that slightly true, but I don't think it's the sole cause. And so
1: that's absolutely right. Yeah. I think that is, I think in general, a person who just says, I'm going to eat more animal products. Uh, and, and have them replace processed carbohydrates, that's going to be an absolute win um, because you will be eliminating the insulin spiking nature and the seed oils that come with it. So you're eliminating a primary and a secondary cause of insulin resistance. And then the degree to which the differing meats would have differing levels of omega-6s, that to me is so little. It's so much less. The moment you stop eating the crackers and the salad, you know, the, the, the ranch dressing with soybean oil and all that other junk, you've, you have done so much and in any of the minuscule differing amounts of omega-6s. Now, having said I think it's irrelevant, but having said that, I am an enormous advocate of beef over chicken okay. um, and, and the differing fatty acid profile and the overall amount of fat is is a part of that, frankly, but it's more a matter of beef is just better than chicken. I think for in, in overall health within the overall composition of nutrients.
0: Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, so in the carnivore space, there's a lot of people that eat meat only for a while, maybe very few carbohydrates. And then they start seeing their glucose, their resting glucose in the morning, um, a little bit higher. The A1C is a little bit higher for the three month mark. Yeah, And so they start worrying, oh no, this diet, isn't good for me because now my blood sugar is in the nineties. My A one C is closer to five point five when it used to be four point eight mm-hmm, on keto. Mm-hmm. This diet's wrong, and so is it better? I mean, so why one is that happening, and then two is it better to almost have your in, your glucose at ninety, but then without many fluctuations throughout the day, or like your morning glucose is seventy, but then when you eat your foods, maybe you have some carbs, but your blood sugar is going up to one thirty and then back down, and yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That what, These are, what a great question. So I, two, two thoughts come to mind relevant kind of to the two key parts of the question, um, the kind of paradoxical rise in glucose and then the, you know, fasting states every morning, and then the HbA1c, the hemoglobin A1c, which I look at as kind of a distinct thing, although often okay. we, we lump them together. So with the glucose levels hovering around the nineties, My view, frankly, is there's nothing more pathological about having a glucose of 95 than there is a glucose of 85. I know of no studies that have shown any conclusive evidence whatsoever that that kind of 10 milligram per deciliter um, change is going to be any way harmful. So um, I don't think people need to get too worried about that, um, even maybe around 100, frankly. Uh, I think that is all within a normal range. It's all in a healthy, normal range. Now, however, the other question aspect of this that you mentioned is why would that be happening? Why would someone who's eating essentially a zero carbohydrate diet have an increase in their glucose or at least an inability of it to drop? There is no answer to that question. That is probably the single most common question I've ever been asked in my whole time being involved in podcasts and social media. We actually have a study going on right now to try to find that. We have people wearing continuous glucose monitors and, um, and, and they, and we're having them do macronutrient tests over various weeks where they're drinking pure protein, pure fat, and pure glucose. My theory is some people are more protein sensitive than other people. So we know that amino acids will have a stimulatory effect of um, stimulating glucagon release from the pancreas. And I think, and we know in type two diabetics, we know that this can happen in people where they eat a certain load of protein and they will have a much higher glucagon release than someone who's not a diabetic. I think that there are people who have that similar protein sensitivity and and a much higher release of glucagon in response to protein than other people do. And when glucagon goes up, it wants to increase glucose in the blood. And so that's where I think it's happening in some of these people that adopt essentially zero-carb diets. It's just that all that protein, which I think is a good thing, is stimulating glucagon to a higher amount than average, and thus they're seeing a higher glucose level in the blood. Again, though, I don't think that's a problem. And then lastly, your comment about the hemoglobin A1c, how people will see that it's going up. That can be a result of two things. And I think it's the second I'll mention that too many people overlook, including in clinical practice. Yes, hemoglobin A1c can be a reflection of an elevated glucose. Yes, that's true. But there's another part of that formula or another variable that's going into this formula. Hemoglobin A1c is glucose and hemoglobin Mm. or the red blood cell itself. And too many people only look at the the glucose part and totally ignore the hemoglobin or red blood cell part of it. Hemoglobin is just a part of red blood cells. Um, So what I think can also be happening in this case, and there's some limited... Case reports in the published literature to confirm this, which is why I'm mentioning it at all. So it's partly theory of mine and, and partly backed up by data. Um, the more nourished a person is, especially with red red meat and beef, I believe the longer the red blood cells live. That essentially the red blood cells are healthier and they last a lot longer. They can last up to you know maybe 50 percent longer than in someone who's say a vegan and who's eating very, very um, uh, you know, nutrient deficient diets for the most part. And it, uh, the longer a red blood cell is alive, just the more likely it is to get glycosylated or to have a glucose bind to it. And so what I think may be happening in these people with long-lived red blood cells is that they're kind of getting a false positive with their hemoglobin A1c test. So they get a hemoglobin A1c, and it's in the mid-fives, and the clinician will say, oh, wow, you're, it looks like you're kind of getting pre-diabetic. When in reality, their glucose levels are in the 80s or maybe low 90s. Those are very, very good levels, even I would say around 100. Um, those are fine glucose levels. It's just that they have really long lived red blood cells. In contrast, you could have someone with elevated glucose levels and a normal hemoglobin A1C, and they would get a pat on the back. And that's just because they actually have really short-lived red blood cells. The red blood cells die so quickly that they never have time to get glycosylated. And thus they end up having a false negative. You think, you know, you have this false sense of security that their glucose levels are actually okay. When in reality, they're not great and they are trending in a wrong direction. It's just the HbA1c doesn't detect it again, because it's a problem with the red blood cells in this case.
0: Yeah. And um, the limited research I did, I found similar things. And I think one other article I read said that the last 30, like the other thing is that the A1C is imbalanced in that it's a weighted average. So the last 30 days weigh more than like, if you were eating cleaner for the 90 days. Yeah, yeah. So what I got from everything was, okay, so it may be just one of those markers again, where for a low carb ketogenic that eats a very meat heavy diet or a carnivore diet, the blood markers may be different and that's okay. And it seems yeah. like the A1C glucose is another um, one of those lately with this poof, thought a lot of people are like, well, we shouldn't be eating fish oils and um, salmon because it's high in polyunsaturated fatty acids. Yeah. And as a nutritionist, that is, it's, it's heartbreaking because you yeah. see people that eat carnivore and they're really deficient in their fatty acids from some testing and there's a imbalance mm-hmm, and they're just mm-hmm. eating like grass-fed grass-finished beef with all the organs but not taking any of the omega-3s and then they won't supplement because they're saying they're all oxidized they're really yeah, rancid yeah. and it's just it, it's unfortunate because i think what's an ideal diet on a carnivore diet is sort of eating the rainbow so all meats should be included to have a mm-hmm. healthy range of the oils. So what are your thoughts with um, eating fatty fish? And then also, do you think all fish oil supplements are rancid and oxidizing and that no one should be taking them?
1: That's a great question. So I'll start with the latter one of your la- the latter part of your question with regards to fish oil supplements. Yes. Um, or, first of all, I don't know. That's not, that's not something I'm overly familiar with. Uh, but what I would say is, I think as closely as we can, we should eat our omega-3s like nature intended. And I think it's pretty fascinating that in nature, when we eat omega-3-rich foods like fish, they're also rich with vitamin E and natural and antioxidants. Yeah. And I think it's – so it's, what's interesting to note is that with polyunsaturated fatty acids, omega-6s and omega-3s, they have they – have, I'm, I'm kind of pulling this – I'm making this up in real time – so they have three pathways available to them. One, they can be stored. We can store omega, uh, polyunsaturated fats in fat cells or in lipid droplets. So we can store them. Alternatively, we can, they can go down the route of oxidation. In other words, we can burn them for energy. That's what I mean by oxidation. And then lastly, they can go down the route of peroxidation, which is the one that most people are afraid of, and, and rightly so. When we take an omega-6 or omega-3 fat and it goes down the peroxidation, that's when it's potentially problematic. If we burn it for energy, well, that's fine. It's just creating energy. And the fact is, Judy, those, um, those omega-6s and omega-3s are burned at a very, very high rate. In fact, we burn polyunsaturated fats so rapidly that we can they're the most ketogenic of all the fats because we burn them so quickly that the liver and some, a few other cells like some in the brain just start putting it down into the pathway of making ketones because we're burning so much of them. So they have a very high oxidation or energy burning rate. Now, which sort of pathway predominates? I think it's really a matter of antioxidant presence, and that will prevent it from going down the peroxidation pathway to a degree. So I think if someone's, so one, I agree wholeheartedly, people should be absolutely eating fish. Anyone who is interested in that topic should look up the work by a man named Stephen Cunane, C-U-N-N-A-N-E. He wrote a fascinating book called Survival of the Fattest, and he looks at human brain development and how humans are remarkable creatures because we are are the only land-based mammals that are born obese, and we basically stay obese. Even a lean human is practically obese compared to every other mammal. We think we look at cows and we think cows are fat. They're actually exquisitely lean. They just have these big distended bellies because of all their stomachs and all the bacteria in them. But nevertheless, we're born obese, and we're the only animal born with a brain that is larger than the birth canal, much to mommy's dismay, of course. But we have these big, hungry brains and all this fat in our bodies that are capable of turning into ketones to fuel this explosive brain growth in this high metabolic rate organ. And he very much. Uh, Stephen Cunane very much embraces this idea that the human um, evolutionary uh, diet is one that is shore-based shore or ocean shore-based, that we were eating foods that were rich in omega-3s to support this incredible brain growth and, um, and rich in iodine to make thyroid hormone to support rapid brain growth because thyroid hormone is very, very involved in that. Insufficient thyroid hormone in a newborn is absolutely catastrophic to development, not not to mention insufficient iodine and thyroid in mom who's growing the baby. It's catastrophic if the baby's yeah. born at all, usually it would be miscarried. But nevertheless, all of this is my long-winded way of saying I'm a huge advocate of eating fish. I'm, I'm even an advocate of focusing on omega-3s, but I do think it is in our best interest to try to get it in as raw or natural a form as possible. Now, this is where my ignorance will start to manifest itself. I I would imagine there will be something different between two capsules that look the same, but one capsule is just pure omega-3. The other one is say cod liver oil or something, which is a more, I, I believe the difference would be that there's more in this one, you know, the cod liver oil than in just the pure omega-3. Additionally, sometimes in the pure omega-3 tablets, tablets or capsules, there are there's soybean oil as a filler in them. And wow. so that's, yeah, I mean, it's in everyone's best interest to turn that label around and, and make sure right. because commonly there can be soybean oil and the omega-3 is actually just a small component of it. So anyway, I think we want to try to get it in as natural way as possible. Um. So if it is capsule formed and maybe go to like the kind of liver oil, cod liver oil version of things where it likely has more natural antioxidants in it, like vitamin E, like it does in nature to help prevent it from going down the path of peroxidation.
0: And I think that makes sense. My only concern with cod liver oil is it's very, very, very high in vitamin A. And that's where, you know, we store a lot of vitamin A and that's My only concern about the cod liver oil. I'm sure
1: you're right. I'm sure you're (laughs) right. And and so this truly was, I'm I'm so deeply ignorant on that topic. So I just want to say, I guess, however we can make sure that it doesn't have soybean oil in it and that it might have some degree of vitamin E in it, which is a natural antioxidant that will naturally come with omega-3s. And I don't think it's an accident that they come together.
0: Yeah, no. And I, I firmly believe that when I started looking at not just, so first I looked at, okay, do all these meats have a lot of the... Um, essential nutrients and vitamins and minerals, and they a lot of them did. So it's like, oh wow, meat really has a lot of nutrition. And then as I got more nuanced when I was working with clients and people weren't feeling fully well on carnivore, I noticed that there's certain foods that have better balances. So liver is great, uh, beef liver for a lot of nutrition, but for example, the copper to zinc ratio is really really off. Whereas if you ate oysters and if you ate again a balance of everything. Um, oysters is really, really balanced with the zinc and copper. And since mm-hmm, they kind mm-hmm. of counteract each other it works beautifully. And then same thing with fish. So if you really want the fat soluble vitamins, uh, fish has a very beautiful balance of ADE and K uh, versus mm-hmm. like some of the beef, for example. Um, and so I think that's where it's really smart to just eat a, you know, people eat grass finished beef or lamb because they say, Oh, it's richer in omega threes, or they buy the yeah. egg version of omega threes. Yeah. But it's, nowhere near the amount of like one ounce of salmon roe or three ounces or four ounces of just salmon or sardines with their bones intact. Yeah. So that's where, um, you know, I'm in agreement with you. I think just eating a variety is ideal and it's just, well, sad I, you
1: Judy, you need to read Stephen Kinane stuff. Okay. I will I will. keep invoking sardines and salmon and his, his shore based idea of human, the evolution of the human diet is, is going right along with everything you're just saying. Really? Right okay.
0: Yeah. And it's unfortunate because so many people in the carnivore one, it's like, you don't really crave fish when you're eating all meat. But secondly, people are scared. Like, well, what about all the mercury? What about all the PFAs in the waters? And, um, you know, I had Dom Agostino on and he said he Mm -hmm. wanted to test that. So, For his N equals one, he had like six cans of sardines every single day. And he tested his mercury and it was nowhere near what people thought it would be. And there Uh, were people in his uh school or his community that have way more than him and they don't even eat fish. So I think it's I think the you know, the positive fully outweighs the negatives. Um and I just don't see it. I see a lot of people healing when their omega-3s um come up. And I people don't advocate for it on a carnivore diet, and it's really unfortunate.
1: Yeah. No, well, well said. I think you clearly have a very informed and eloquent voice in the matter. I think it's brilliant. I'm glad to hear it.
0: (laughs) Thank you. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the ketogenic diet, you know, you know, depending on how much protein you eat on a carnivore diet, it will be ketogenic or not. Everyone will have a little bit of ketone since we just don't eat carbohydrates, but you know, there's some people saying that ketogenic diets long-term are not ideal. Again, insulin will be too low without insulin stimulation. You may not have the thyroid hormone and metabolism functioning right. Are ketogenic diets not healthy for the long-term?
1: There are so many myths surrounding the ketogenic diet. I would say anyone who is attempting to, um, claim that long-term adherence is somehow going to be harmful. I would just say, show me the data. Um, I don't know of any evidence, um, There are studies published showing people, mentioning, mentioning, these are kind of prospective studies, which means it's a little flawed, Mm -hmm. mentioning people adhering to ketogenic diets for up to four years and having total remission of type 2 diabetes throughout that entire time. And that's really the lens through which I see the ketogenic diet. Of course, its origins are in the treatment of seizures for which it can be completely curative. We've also known for 100 years that ketogenic diets can completely resolve migraine headaches in most people. And so I'm increasingly interested in the neurological and brain centric effect. Right. But, but I've, I, I, came to the ketogenic diet because of its incredible improvement in insulin resistance. know that that's my main focus and it, it is still, and always will be. Uh, so I, I have now, and this is anecdotal. I know people who've been doing this for years for, for a decade and all they have experienced is the benefits of good health. So I know of no evidence to suggest that it cannot be adhered to long-term. There's no evidence to suggest that the thyroid gland is in any way altered. Um, there is some evidence to show that thyroid hormone production goes down. But I, am, I wonder at why people think that's a problem, um, because we know that insulin production goes down on a ketogenic diet. Leptin production goes down. These are all natural cortisol levels tend to drop over time and And to me, it is a function not that the thyroid gland is damaged, it's just that the body has become more thyroid hormone sensitive, mm. and so there's an improvement so there's no evidence to suggest this is harmful in any way. Um, it, in contrast, there's evidence to show that thyroid hormone is working better that the, that they're more sensitive to the thyroid hormone, just like they are to insulin. and as insulin levels come down because the body's becoming more sensitive to it, so too it, it, it's analogous thyroid hormone comes down because the body's becoming more sensitive to it. So I know of no reason to, no evidence to suggest that it's harmful in the long-term. But having said that, I'm also not one of those people who believe everyone needs to be adhering to a ketogenic diet at all, all times, not at all. Sure. I think if, if this is a person who has a cognitive deficit, like the ones I mentioned a moment ago, that's a strong reason to follow a ketogenic diet. And among many other potential benefits, if this is a person who struggles with type 2 diabetes, then there's, I believe that a ketogenic diet is going to be very, very helpful. But for the rest of us, um, if someone's insulin sensitive and they struggle with their weight, but they're insulin sensitive, mm-hmm. then I would say that's the kind of person who can benefit really on almost any diet. They're going to be fine. They're going to lose weight and they're going to feel fine. But the majority of people nowadays are insulin resistant.
0: Right. And,
1: and so a low, we know that if you're insulin resistant, a low carb diet will vastly outperform a low fat diet. And anyway, uh, I guess to sum that up, I'm I'm an advocate of a ketogenic diet, even indeed long-term adherence for those disorders or those health concerns that can be so exquisitely improved by the diet.
0: Yeah. And the commonality I see with people that say that their thyroid is they become hypothyroid or even their testosterone has dropped significantly or their DHEA. I see a commonality with they don't eat a lot of fat. So they're really focused on just Mm. the protein for energy. And then they're also under eating, right? Because ketogenic doesn't make you hangry. And so those are the two commonalities I see that then people are like, it was a diet, but rather if you look at how many calories they were intaking, and also the Oh, if you have enough fat on your body, you shouldn't consume fat. So then they're eating just, you know, the leaner meats, which that's more of a building block rather than an energy source. um, Well
1: said. Yeah, we know in men, in particular, when men adopt low-fat diets, their production of testosterone and their production and quality of sperm drops precipitously. I would imagine the same thing will go to a degree in women as well. Right. But yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I love what you're saying. I am kind of, uh, not. A f- I'm, I'm very wary of what I see going on in the low-carb space now, where the yeah. shift, we used to be wholeheartedly embracing fat. Mm-hmm. maybe I think we went a little too far. And in fact, I think I was one of the leading voices on that where a number of years ago, I gave a talk about the relevance of glucagon mm-hmm. and protein and why on a low carb or ketogenic diet, we should not be fearing protein. So I've, I've long been beating that drum, but I look with such wonder and a little sadness at how we went from being very fat obsessed um, I thought we went a little too far and that we were f- too afraid of protein. Now we're swinging the other way. Right. Now we're protein obsessed. And you see people who are exceptionally lean and and they're advocating these very high protein diets. And, and I, I, in fact, I don't think it's healthy. Um, we know that there's such a thing as nitrogen poisoning. and And right. when you start to run out of body fat, then why on earth are you focusing on protein um, when that's what you're cutting? You're literally stripping your own protein at that point, because that's the difference between a fast and starvation. Have we run out of fat? And when we start to run out of fat, we start making less ketones. And now all the brain's energy needs must be met by the glucose that comes from stripping the amino acids from muscle through gluconeogenesis. So I think we've unfortunately started swinging too far the other way. And that as much as I'm an advocate of eating protein, and I absolutely am right. prioritizing protein is one of my key kind of dietary foci, but I think we still have to go back to eating them the way nature intended, yes. um, where, where all of the best proteins in nature come with fat. That's how we should eat them. Um, uh, we should, you know, fish is wonderful protein source and a lot of fat. Well, that's how we should eat it. Um, beef. supposed to come with fat that's how we should eat it one of the reasons i'm a little cool on eating chicken is that our ancestors didn't even within the united states in the last hundred years you look at chicken consumption and it went by being absolutely the lowest meat consumed by far and now it is it is the single most common source of meat and beef and pork and the others are kind of they're about where they all were they're about where they were 100 years ago and it's just chicken that has come up from nowhere to being the number one. And I'm not saying chicken's bad, but I I I kind of I grimace a little when I see that's become the main meat mm. where I, I think it's we don't have enough fat in it. Like I know for my kids in my home, as they're growing, I I want them to eat wonderful sources of protein and I want them to have lots of fat. And so if we're ever cooking with chicken, I want to make sure there's butter all over that chicken or that there's olive oil all over that chicken. I just want them to be eating a lot of fat with that protein because that's how it's supposed to come, I believe, in nature. And we know that it's the most anabolic mix. Right. Fat and protein together will induce greater muscle growth than any amount of protein alone.
0: With this thought, so a lot of these people then are swinging to, well, I need a little bit more energy because protein alone is not giving me energy. So instead of saying, let me try some fat, they go, let me try some fruit. So now they're eating... Yeah. You know, moderate protein or honey. I know, yeah, a lot of honey fans now. More and right. More. So, but I, I worry about that whole uric acid model with the fructose. With you know this, and um, do you think there's any concerns with that? Um, oh, I know oh that-
1: absolutely. There's no question. Uric acid is going to be in much higher uh, production from fructose consumption and fructose metabolism than almost any amount of protein from from meats. Like the purines from meats is such an incredibly modest. Right, I would right. say irrelevant, irrelevant contributor, but every time we metabolize fructose, we are pushing things down that pathway of, of uric acid production.
0: So, so then with that thought, if you are eating high protein because of the purines, but now, um, with that yeah. itself is not an issue, but then now that you're adding like 200 right. grams of fruit, which is more than yeah. half of each fruit has a lot of fructose. And then even honey is more fructose than any other sugar. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. Then you're probably compounding it. Yep. I would say that's a, that's an interesting, um, that is not a great mix. I would say.
0: Okay. The only reason I'm bringing it up is I have some carnivores that um, have been eating this way for a while and all of a sudden their gout's flaring. And I'm, Yep. my first question is always, are you adding fruit to your diet? Because good for you, right. A little amount can actually cause that insulin to rise. And, you know, and
1: even Judy, we should also be asking what they're drinking. A lot of nowadays, I actually stopped drinking a, a yerba mate drink that I w- had become really enamored with. One of the molecules that are in yerba mate and other teas like it are theobromines. Oh, that's interesting. And I looked up the source and theobromines, I think can produce 10,000 times more uric acid, even than fructose oh, wow. can. Cause I was noticing a little bit of gout in a finger. Mm-hmm. And I noticed a little, what's called a gouty tophus on my ear, a, a teeny little bump on my ear. And I was so, I knew of these symptoms of gout, this pain in my knuckle, um, Mm. on my finger. And it kind of changed in the shape of, at the end of it. And then this little bump on my ear. And I thought, I I think I'm getting gout. And it was quite shocking to me. And so I started analyzing all of my behaviors and I was drinking this yerba mate a lot, like almost throughout the day, more than I was drinking water at the time. And so I looked it up and realized that this theobromine, this chemical that's found in coffee and teas, although at lower levels than in yerba mate. 10,000 times more uric acid production capability than even fructose. And so I cut that out. Wow. And within a few months, my problems had resolved.
0: What is the compound called again?
1: Yeah. Theobromine.
0: The, is it the same family as bromide? Uh, I don't
1: know how it okay. relates to that, but I know you have varying levels of it. Basically all coffees and teas, okay. varying levels. And so anyway, my point, not that I, you have so much more practical experience than I do. But I I can't help but have that little voice now whispering in your ear that when you have someone who's struggling with gout, as much as I think it's very, very appropriate to scrutinize the sources of fructose, I think there are other seemingly totally benign things that they may be brewing and drinking that are contributing to it as well.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of people that drink coffee and teas because we consider it safe on carnivore. And so I wonder and i i'm curious to see if that compound is similar to bromide because the only reason i'm asking that is if you consume or you're exposed to a lot of bromide which is a halide that's on the same um row of the table of elements as iodine then you will become more deficient in iodine as well and then that impacts the mm-hmm. thyroid so it's interesting i'm going to look that up so thank yeah, you yeah look it up idea. then you can teach me yeah I'll like let you know that's really fascinating so what are some best ways to support insulin sensitivity yeah
1: Yeah. So this is where I think we can kind of revel in the simplicity of the advice, but acknowledge that when it comes, you would know better than anyone when you're trying to institute dietary changes uh, that a simple advice doesn't mean it's easy to implement. Right. And I'm sure you've seen that with so many of your clients. Um, So, and I have the benefit of just sitting in the ivory halls of academia, you know, and extolling the wisdom and, and, you know, (laughs) never really appreciating how hard it might be to implement in practice. But to me, to improve insulin sensitivity is a matter of four variables. And importantly, what I would want to impress upon the audience is that you can start to improve your insulin resistance in a day. I mean, this is, even if you've had insulin resistance for 10 or 20 years, you can start to turn this around where in weeks, your insulin sensitivity could have improved so much that you have to to change your Diabetes medications. You know, you got to call up your doctor and report that, you know, the dosing has to be cut in half. And in some instances, you have to stop it. Not that I'm giving anyone medical advice here, of (laughs) course. But to me, there's four pillars upon which an insulin sensitizing diet is built. First, control carbohydrates. And I'm not uh, a carnivore. And I don't think everyone needs to be, although I acknowledge it can be a fantastically healthy way of eating. So I don't say eliminate carbs, I say control carbohydrates. Focus on fruits and vegetables, you know, mostly. And, and there can be other layers to that. Sure. Like the least of the sugary fruits, and the least of the the less the, the the lower starch vegetables, you know. But that's kind of next order thinking. But in general, control your carbs. Focus on unprocessed fruits and vegetables. Eat them, don't drink them, and don't get your carbs from bags and boxes with barcodes, like I'd mentioned before. Two, prioritize protein, make sure you're getting high quality animal protein, which is superior to plant protein. And then third, it goes along with number two, which is don't be afraid of fat. Don't fear fat. Fat comes with protein in nature. That's how we should eat it. And, and, And other oils and butter, I think we can be very liberal with it. But there's, you know, you can go too far with it. Like, I don't think we need to be adding it to our coffee all the time. But if we add it on occasion... And it helps us stay full for longer, which I think it does. Then I think there's value to that, but don't be afraid of fat and make sure that fat, that fat is coming from animal and fruit sources, any animal fat, and then essentially the fruit fats like coconuts, avocados, olives, and be very, very wary of the industrial seed oils like we mentioned. And then the last one is fast. Don't feel like you need to eat six times a day. Even don't feel like you need to eat three times a day. Right. Structure your fasts from time to time, at least at least once a week, um, Have a good long period, maybe even 24 hours. Um, but more important than how long you fast is how you end it. Make sure that you have your meal planned, roughly how much you're going to eat, how long you'll take to eat it. Don't just binge and, okay. and let yourself go into this un- without a plan, because then you'll fast all day, eat your one meal a day and eat a bunch of garbage, and you'll stuff yourself, you'll have shame and regret that you broke your fast in such a terrible way, now you're going to sleep terribly, and you wake up with a conviction to do it better today, you can just do the exact same thing. So I would encourage people who want to try to eat one meal a day or to fast, do intermittent fasting, Uh, my advice through my own trial and error is eat a big lunch. Mm. I have found that if I eat a big filling lunch, it is so much easier for me to control my cravings in the evening is that when when I come home and I eat a modest dinner with my wife and children, and then I can just be very content and done throughout the rest of the evening. It's harder for me. If I've been fasting all day and I don't have my dinner well planned and structured, then I just start snacking throughout the evening and I go to bed too full and it doesn't quite work out too well for me personally, although I know others who can do it wonderfully for me, the trick has been, I eat a really filling, satisfying lunch.
0: I think for a lot of people, they say they sleep better if they're not eating too close to dinner too. And they say it's better for even the for sleep to be better. Um, Can you talk a little bit about sleep and insulin sensitivity and how, or insulin resistance and how, how that affects our sleep? Um, There's a lot of people on low carb ketogenic diets that say, I feel great during the day, but at night I just don't sleep as well. And that's why I need to introduce carbs again.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I've actually seen hints of that myself. Okay. When I'm very, very strict, deep in ketosis, I just wake up earlier. Hmm. Um, I'm a little more—I guess the best word would be restless. But I track my—not restless. That's not the right word. I just am more alert yeah. um, at night. And but when I—I I very studiously track my sleep habits um, and, and my in the physiological variables like heart rate variability and body sure. temperature. And interestingly. I find that when I'm very strict and deep in ketosis, I, I sleep less, but all of my kind of biometrics are normal. Okay. It, it, I, so I don't know what to conclude from that. And I would want everyone to know that I'm speculating a little. Um, what I have found is that I'm able to thrive at a very high level and function very well, even though I'm getting a little less sleep. And I don't know that I could quantify how much less I'm getting, but I just wake up. I'm, it's 4 or 4.30. I'm, my eyes kind of open up and I'm just awake uh, and I'm not tired. I'm not groggy and I function perfectly well throughout the day, but I have felt that I've noticed that I don't know the reasons. I don't know the physiological origins for that. Um, but I could see why someone would say, well, I'm going to eat more carbs because I want to sleep a little longer. Um, I think, I think length of sleep might not matter as much of, uh, as, as the quality sure. of the sleep. But again, uh, it's a little outside my area of expertise, but to bring, bring that back to insulin resistance, if someone is sleep deprived, cortisol is elevated and cortisol will cause insulin resistance. That is a primary cause of insulin resistance, independent of any other variable. If cortisol is elevated um, for a period of time, then the body will be quantifiably more insulin resistant than otherwise.
0: And there are some people that say that a low carb diet will increase your cortisol more because you're kind of on it more (laughs) versus if
1: you're
0: right versus someone that's, um, eating a lot of sugar, but then insulin's not working as well. So then cortisol kind of has to come and rescue. So is that, I mean, yeah, so the,
1: the, yeah, the, the former viewpoint that you mentioned that a low carb diet can increase cortisol that is based to my knowledge on one single study because there's only one single study that has found an elevation in cortisol and what they found in the men and women in other studies have not supported this conclusion Importantly, So this study found that when women adopted a low carb diet at a, at, between around weeks, one to two or two to three, there was an elevation in cortisol and it was gone in by the end of that week. So it was a very temporary an acute relative increase in cortisol that lasted only a few days and went back down to normal. I don't know the reasons why. And that's why some people will say women shouldn't fast. Um, I I believe it was it's only based on that one single study. And I think it is a a, a deeply unfortunate conclusion to what appears to be an exquisitely acute phenomenon.
0: And I also think it goes back to a lot of real life people under eat, and then they also fast. So then it's just perpetuating the issue. So Um, And, and that makes sense because for most of my clients, their cortisol is actually better balanced. So then they get their period back, their sex hormones get more regulated. And so it's just, it's really unfortunate that there's that that type of information out there. One other thing I just wanted to bring up with the sleep is um, I did like just light research on it. And it seems like when you're in a ketogenic state, I think there was one study with kids And they did have disrupted sleep, but they noticed that their sleep was shorter. But like you said, um, they still had good deep sleep amounts and It might be that their REM cycles, they just go through it much quicker on a ketogenic Mm -hmm. diet versus a regular. And so therefore you actually don't need as much sleep. And so for my clients, I'll say, what really matters is, okay, fine. You can't get eight hours that you ideally want, but if you will feel rested when you wake up, then maybe it's okay. And so the question I was going to ask you is when you sleep less and you feel more alert, do you feel still rested though? Even if, even though your markers say it's beautiful, but do you feel okay?
1: Yeah. So for me, the biggest variable is mid-afternoon. Like in, you know, it's about noon here in Utah in about two or three hours. If I start to get very tired or heavy headed, then I'll know I was not rested. So independent of any of the kind of biometrics that I can measure and pay attention to, those are all just kind of bells and whistles. Um, And and in no way will I ever look at that as a way to, um, as the true relevant markers. It is, I always feel alert in the morning, almost always. It's very uncommon for me not to feel alert in the morning. For me, the big test of whether I've slept well is in a few hours from now, okay. early afternoon.
0: You mentioned um, how the thyroid hormone affects muscles while you're in a ketogenic state. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So um, a thyroid hormone will we'll do all kinds of things throughout the whole body. Um, it, literally every cell of the body um, will have some response to thyroid hormone except red blood cells because they don't have nucleus um, but but the thyroid will tell the cell every cell to do all kinds of things at the muscle cells, it will induce mitochondrial biogenesis. It's one of its many, many variables and that's that's kind of essential in a ketogenic state because if you are in ketosis, your primary fuels at the moment are fats, and you can only burn fats in the mitochondria. And it's interesting to note that um, thyroid, which is the body appears to be more sensitive to thyroid hormone in a ketogenic state. It's basically facilitating the production of mitochondria to enable the body to burn the fats better as it is in a higher fat burning state. Now, thyroid hormone actually does kind of similar things at fat cells where thyroid hormone can induce the synthesis of mitochondria and and fat cells as well and make the increase the metabolic rate in the fat cells by activating this uncoupling of the mitochondria. So thyroid hormone does that at fat cells, but it doesn't do that at muscle cells At muscle cells. It just tells the muscles to make new mitochondria and all of it may be with the purpose of just burning fat a little better.
0: These things happen with the thyroid hormone when you're in a ketogenic state, but we think of low carb is so bad for the thyroid. And it's just, it's just interesting how far off we are with some of the, even advice that's given out today, because it's really unfortunate. A lot of people do struggle with hypothyroid. And I always bring up the fact that most people on like an paleo diet or an autoimmune paleo diet, a lot of them struggle with thyroid issues. So, and they're, none of them are reducing carbs, right? They're eating Mm -hmm, cleaner mm -hmm. carbs. And so maybe it's not the carbs and it's just unfortunate because I think almost some people wish that it is the carbs so they can just maybe have some more. I'm not sure. Oh, for but... sure.
1: Oh, I agree with that. Yeah. I, th- I heard something recently on, on, on Twitter. I saw this, that levothyroxine, which is a, a medication for people right. with hypothyroidism is the second most commonly prescribed drug in the entire United States. I believe it. That, that to me is mind blowing that it's the second most. So the second most common drug prescribed in the U S is a drug to treat low thyroid. It is shocking to me. And, and to me, whenever I hear this kind of statistic, I think, well, it's not like we are evolving to lose our thyroid hormone or thyroid gland. This ha- this is not a genetic phenomenon. This is an environmental effect. We, there are people who are inadvertently exposing themselves to a way of eating and, and the chemicals or the molecules in those foods that are potentially damaging their thyroid gland. It's, it's just shock. And of course, a lot of that would be autoimmune, like with, right. with Hashimoto's. And anytime you're talking about an autoimmune disease, Females are always going to be my impact, almost always going to be more impacted than males because of the relevance of estrogen, actually, is kind of somewhat contributing to autoimmune diseases. But even still, it's a shocking statistic and simply evidence of the fact that a lot of people are, are apparently not doing their thyroid gland any favors by how they're living.
0: Yeah. I I couldn't agree anymore. Do you, do you think that most people should just be smarter with their carbohydrates? And I'm only asking this because in the very beginning of the conversation, I brought up how some people believe that, uh, pure sugar is not an issue that it doesn't cause insulin resistance.
1: Yeah, that's a very, very good question. I, I want to be careful and and I would not say pure sugar will cause insulin resistance partly because I don't know of a study that has confirmed that it's, it's tempting to say that. And I would say it's probably going to cause insulin resistance eventually, if they were eating a lot, just because if they're eating a lot of it and eating it frequently, their insulin will always be elevated. And then it's the insulin that's going to cause the insulin resistance. But, um, you know, pure sugar, I would say the problem with that is, uh, it it is devoid of any nutrition. Um, and, and second, so an empty calorie in that sense um but when you spike your insulin you lower the overall energy availability in the blood david ludwig's group at harvard published an incredible paper on this looking at two meals that were equal in calories and they looked at energy availability which was a function of all the available kind of calorie nutrients in the blood after eating a meal and they found that the more higher ref- um, carbohydrate meal lower fat had a much higher insulin release not surprisingly And insulin tells nutrients to go out of the blood and into the cells of the body. And so the overall availability of energy in the blood was significantly lower after an insulin spiking meal than a meal that didn't spike insulin, like lower carb, higher fat, same protein across the two. And I think that that is relevant in light of another study that was published finding that if someone spikes their insulin, they're much hungrier, much sooner. And part of that could be because the brain doesn't have a capacity to store energy. It has a very high metabolic rate and all of its metabolic rate essentially must be met by whatever the nutrients are available in the blood, namely glucose and ketones. And so it's interesting that someone spikes their insulin, they lower their glucose levels and they stop producing ketones because insulin inhibits ketogenesis. Well, then the brain is sensing, Hey, we need more energy, right? little realizing that we've just socked it all the way into our big fat cells and the fat cells and, the, and even the liver cells maybe took all of it. And Now the brain is left wondering where the rest of the energy is. And thus in the absence of energy availability, it stimulates hunger and wants the person to eat again sooner. So sugar, to bring it back to this, I'm not going to say sugar causes insulin resistance. I would say that sugar eating sugar too often could cause insulin resistance through the insulin elevations. But even independent of that, it's going to create a disordered eating pattern where you are depriving your body of other nutrients that you should be focusing on. um, And as it's kind of taking up caloric space, if you will, and you're probably stimulating hunger much, much sooner. And generally that hunger is going to want to push you to eat something that's going to increase your glucose levels. Yeah,
0: I think that's very well said. Thank you. I know you have a new I guess it's a meal replacement and I was just wondering, yeah. you know, uh, who was it made for? And um, so is it for a meal replacement? Is it like you can have the, a shake um, with your meal? W- what was the intention yeah. of the product?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks for bringing it up. It's been a, it's been a bit of a side, a fun side project where I joked a moment ago, how, you know, in the ivory halls of academia, we just are up here extolling wisdom um, to the public without any real practical takeaway from it. Well, this was my genuine effort to want to say, look, I'm a scientist and I study, I find, you know, interesting answers to relevant scientific questions. Well, I just wanted to help translate that into practical solutions to real world problems. And as much as, like I said earlier, I know that these ideas are simple, these insulin sensitizing ideas, but putting them into practice can be a challenge. And that's really where the shake um, was, came from. So I had one of my older brothers and I have a lot of older brothers. We he had come to me and, and I've been telling him for years, look, I just don't think anyone has done a really good uh, meal replacement shake. And then the time finally came; he had the bandwidth to help me put it together. But essentially, it was a shake designed to control carbs, prioritize protein, and fill with fat. And with the latter two in particular, I really wanted to have a ratio of one to one protein to fat to mimic what you get in fatty beef or in an egg, because that that is the ratio that was tested in humans to find the most anabolic effect at the muscle.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: So that was the ratio of the fat to to protein one-to-one by mass. And then I also wanted to do what no one else had done, which is have this full spectrum of fats. I wanted the short-chain fats. I wanted medium-chain fats and long-chain fats. And the average human diet has plenty of long-chain. You know, the average ketogenic diet is going to have more medium-chain, and we won't really have any short-chain. And we make short-chain fats in our bacteria, in our stuff, in our stomachs and in our intestines, um, but also those short chain fat, the short chain fats are a fuel for the bacteria as well. Not only being a fuel for us, um, also some bacteria will use that as a fuel. So there were some prebiotic um, and and kind of probiotic in the sense of, of gut bacteria, which there's a lot of unknowns there, but um, but that was kind of the gist of it. And technology nowadays allows us to turn fats and proteins into powders, especially the fats. That's what's the technological advance, turning an oil into a powder. And and to do that, you're able to just basically spray the oil at a high pressure onto a a matrix of of fiber or protein, and that's what we used. So we were able to put the oils, like the grass-fed ghee or the coconut oil or the olive oil, onto onto a matrix uh, like like a, a protein carrier and a, a, a prebiotic fiber, like a resistant maltodextrin. And I know maltodextrin is a is a, one of those red flags for those of us kind of savvy in the low-carb community because maltodextrin itself is just pure glucose. And it's commonly used in a lot of products as just a filler, just a flow agent to help it flow well. Well, that's not why we used it. It's just a kind of matrix or a binder for the oils. But we used a resistant maltodextrin that the body doesn't digest it doesn't break down into glucose, but it's a prebiotic fiber for the gut bacteria. So they can eat it, and then they can produce short-chain fats themselves as their byproduct from eating that um, that's solu- All it is is a soluble fiber. So nevertheless, um, the name of the company is Health Code, HLTH. Anyone who wants to learn more can just go to a website called GetHealth, HLTH.com, to learn more about the shake. And I put blog posts on there with some collaborators every week. It's really been a fun... A fun, just kind of project, and a way for me to take what I'm learning in the lab and put it into practice. And frankly, for those who are a little time pressed, it's just an easy way to, you know, get a good low carb meal.
0: Okay, so one, it's low carb and it has all the fats, and I think it has um, a lot of nutrition too. So it's not just like a protein shake, right? It's not just right. proteins, but it's a no, yeah. it's a, a treat, meal, replacement. meal replacement. Could a person sustain themselves having two of these shakes a day and then eating nothing else? I mean, not that we recommend that, but yeah. let's just say.
1: Yeah. So that's a really good question. So I actually, I know people who have, who are using the shake for an an emergency food storage Oh, okay. because it's self-stable for two years Mm -hmm. and all you need is water. And as you know, the economic variables are getting less predictable. I I actually think there's something to that, but, and so I just had someone the other day ask me um, about this. Could they live on it? Mm -hmm. And my answer would be no, no. Um, Because one thing that stands out to me is that you, it doesn't have heme iron. It's very difficult to work with heme iron in a product. And and that's kind of what you have to get to prevent becoming iron deficient and developing an anemia. So I would think uh, someone drinking the shake two times a day, um, would be a way to rapidly lose weight because you're one, you're not spiking your insulin. And two, it's going to be relatively low calorie and you know, that's right. 800 to a thousand calories, which is really low. So the person would lose weight really quickly. Um, and, and, you know, that there's always a risk to losing too much weight too quickly that th- are they going to rebound back. But I would say that would be the only reason to do that. Um, but then make sure that you kind of slowly come out of that rapid weight loss period where more often than not, it's one to two shakes a day, maybe one shake a day. And then it's a real meal for dinner. And, and that's, that's the way I use it. Okay. I typically fast through breakfast. I will have a lot of shake for lunch just because I'm in the office and it's really convenient. And so I will do more than just the normal two scoops. I'll do three or even four sometimes. So it's really big. It's like 1,000 or 1,200 calories. And then that leaves me very, very full um, through the rest of the afternoon. And I have dinner with the family, which I will always do. To me, one of the reasons I will never fast through dinner is because that's the social meal. I'm eating it with my wife and my kids. And I think most people, most of us are going to have that be our more social meal. And so I would say that's not the time to fast. It's not the time to even have a shake. That's the time to eat a meal with your friends or your family.
0: Okay. Yeah. And I, I'm in agreement. I, um, there's days that I will fast and I'll still sit with my kids because I think that's the time we talk and we figure yep. out like, how was your day? And yep. um, it's, it's a, such an important part of our family's lives. Um, so just to clarify, so the maltodextrin you guys use is not the sugar that's in like the low carb sugar. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. Right. Yeah. It's, it's called a resistant maltodextrin, Interesting. Um, but it okay. is basically just another word for, it's just a type of a soluble fiber.
0: And you guys couldn't just list on the label and soluble fiber.
1: Yeah. So actually I think on the newer labeling, okay, w- there were so many people who were, th- who would see maltodextrin. And so we, we have approval that you're able to use very different, you know, varying titles for different things, which okay. is part of why food labels are such a mess. But yeah, I think nowadays, I think we called it soluble fiber. Okay. Um, just to help resolve that concern. Cause that's all it is.
0: But oh, thank you for clarifying that. I think it's a good option. I mean, there's, um, I had a client and her father's in the ICU and he's drinking like one of those and sure, but I forgot what the, um, the actual, but it's by Abbott and it's a meal replacement drink that they use as an IV. And if yeah. you look at it, it's so heartbreaking. There's corn syrup, solids, there's canola oil and. Oh, Yes. And this would be basically, they just want to check the
1: macronutrient box. They just, all they say is we need this much protein, this much fat, this much glucose, and they will get the absolute cheapest sources. I know Judy, to me, one of the more sobering things is one, not only how we're using that clinically as if it's something good, but that's the exact kind of thing that gets in most baby formula nowadays, they will create a baby formula and they'll just say, all right, breast milk has this much fat, this much protein, this much glucose. We're going to just match those macros. To hell with the source, we'll pick the absolute cheapest sources of everything mm-hmm. for them. And it is it is such, we do the patient a disservice in the hospital and the poor little baby. Now, I, I know that breastfeeding is complicated and, and lactation can be tricky. But even still, we do the baby such a disservice by just picking that run-of-the-mill formula off the grocery store aisle. Because um, all they're doing is matching the macros to hell with the actual source of the macro.
0: And I, so I got sick with my first child. So we did six months breastfeeding and then I, I was, um, I was taking medication, so I couldn't take breastfeed anymore. And so I went out of my way to look for organic, you know, yeah, good best for you. quality and I, and I flew it in from Germany and looking back now, and I like found the product and I, and there was seed oil and it's just, it's heartbreaking because I spent so much money and I thought I was doing something better. Cause I didn't have the option anymore. And it's, it, that, it makes isn't me so mad, isn't right? it shocking?
1: Yeah, it's... Like, I, I just keep waiting for someone to have the, the gumption to just say, oh, we're going to make a new formula. He, I mean, you can't find anything in the US. I think even to this day, I know a couple who they were both students in my class years ago and they've had their first baby, and we had this exact conversation.
0: Unfortunately, this is where the interview got cut, and um, I think he tried to rejoin several times, and thank you, Dr. Bickman, for doing that. But I, I just wanted to finish the conversation by saying that I think there is one product by Serenity Kids, and they just started the formula a baby's formula. I don't know how good it is. So you may want to check the ingredients. The other option that I always recommend, I wrote a blog post about formulas and why they are not ideal, but you may want to check out that post. As I mentioned, two different options of creating your own homemade formula, if you are not able to nurse. So make sure to check that out. And I will speak for Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Normally I I end the interview with, so where can people find you? And you know, where can people get your book and your uh, meal replacement drink? You can find Dr. Benjamin Bickman's best selling book on Amazon, and I'm sure there's other outlets so you can reach out to him on one of the social media platforms. But you could get his book, Why We Get Sick. You can get his meal replacement product that we talked about. The product is called Health Code, H-L-T-H Code, and I will put links in the show notes, but you can get these meal replacements. If you're not in a situation where you're able to get all your nutrients and your fat and your protein in one meal, then this may be an option for you to take occasionally. I highly recommend following Dr. Bickman on uh, Twitter or Instagram. He might have some other handles, but those are the two places I follow him. Uh, You can find him at Ben opinions and his thoughts and he just makes it so simple. And sometimes that's really what we need to get back to root cause healing. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the nutrition with Judy podcast.